universe of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagine or dare to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. The Outer Edge, that's right. Once again, you're with Tim Swartz and Mike Mott on the edge of darkness, the edge of madness, the edge of night. <laughs> the edge of wetness. <laughs> the edge of wetness. <laughs> the Outer Edge on the, the PSN edge. Radio Network. <laughs> so, Mike Mott, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you? Uh, not too bad, not too bad. Feeling uh, uh, feeling a little bit better. Uh, uh, earlier in the week, I had, uh, I don't know, ear infection, something like that. Just uh, made the left left hand, left side of my face just yeah, feel bad. Yeah, don't you hate that? Uh, it does. Gosh, I mean, I can't remember the last time that I had... Something, something like that, you know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost something you would expect only kids to have, you know, ear infections. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, yeah. you know, we all get them, you know, and uh, sometimes you wake up middle of the night and your ears hurt, and you're like, "What the heck caused that?" You know. But mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, this this week has been kind of a roller coaster uh, uh, ride weather wise. I mean, uh, the the week started out warm. And then uh, around uh, Wednesday and Thursday, it got cold and rainy. And Thursday, it was just like unbelievably cold. Uh, it, it was like uh, uh, back in late fall type of cold. Yeah. And uh, and then yeah. and then on and then on Friday, it uh, the sun came out and it got warm again. So it's no wonder. <laughs> we, we had a couple of days like that too. It was very strange. Yesterday was really cool, but uh, hey, global warming, man. <laughs> Everything gets colder. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean the whole the whole thing with uh, uh climate change is that it affects weather patterns all over the planet. So I mean you can't that's just the claim anyway. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean you just you can't yeah. go and say that oh well, you know, it's every place is going to get hotter or every place is going to get colder. No, yeah. I mean it's the the patterns are changing. Well, you know, as we talked about before, we're we're not causing it. It's cyclical. Um, you know, so Oh it yeah, doesn't yeah, surprise I mean, me. Yeah, yeah, as you know, was, as we mentioned here before, you know, when you when you and I were kids, the big craze was the coming ice age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, <laughs> and it, I mean, you know, you we could still have uh, uh, you know, like the 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 mini ice ages that you know. Uh, has happened in the past where you know you get like a a, a a couple of decades where the the you know the 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 overall temperature is just a lot colder um than what's the norm and you put that in quotes i mean anymore right, right. there there is no norm <laughs> uh, well and boy i tell you something you know you see the video of that uh, that most recent volcano that blew up in, where was it, Chile? Yeah, Chile. Uh, 
and you know you see all the, uh, the 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 smoke and ash and stuff that goes up into the air with just one. I mean, you know, it's it, and it's not a huge volcano either. You know, it's just a you know, regular you know, regular volcano. You just see all that stuff going up into the atmosphere, and it's just like, man, it's you know, it's no wonder right. that weather patterns change all the time. Exactly, I mean, and uh, something uh, like that seriously ch- uh, cools the atmosphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what was it? But, uh, uh, I guess it was the, the Krakatoa volcano. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that was, a, that was, now that was a big one that blew. And I sure. Mean, it blew, it blew sky high. And I guess it affected weather patterns for decades, uh, years afterwards. Yeah. Well, uh, even, even recently, I mean, in terms of history, the Mount Pinatubo, um, lowered the global mean temperature by like five or six degrees. For several years, um, and that was one big volcanic blast, you know, mm-hmm. in the Philippines. So, you know, we we can't affect weather like that, not with our regular activities. So, it's it's bigger than we all are, that's for sure. So, you know, we're just we're just microbes here. <laughs> <laughs> just just waiting for that inevitable foot to come down and stomp us out into a blue. You never know. We may stomp yeah. ourselves with something like yeah. that. Large Hadron Collider, <laughs> nuclear war or something. So. Oh, I saw that. Uh, uh, you put the, you put that on Facebook, the uh, the, the picture of the, the burst of antimatter. Oh, yes. That they That's created. Right. That yes. that was that was bizarre looking. Yeah, if you look at yeah, that, what happened was the uh, they wrote some software that interpreted the data coming off of these uh, high particle collisions when they were trying to create antimatter, and I guess they it, uh, created it. You know, for a fraction of an instant, they they actually created it, and in in, in a lot of the frames that they took, well, I guess they have some sort of uh, software that interprets the radiation. And trying to converts it into what would be an approximation of an image. Um, there were some really strange things in some of those bursts of energy, and one of them looks really weirdly like sort of a, a sinister demonic face. Um, very strange. Almost looks like it's wearing a pharaonic headdress. It's very weird. Yeah, it it was. Now you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's one of these things. You know, I mean, we're yeah, our exactly. brains are trained to look for faces. Yeah. So how do you know if this is pareidolia or yeah. if it's something else? You just don't know. You know. Right. Of course, any skeptic is going to say always, always is pareidolia. Sure, sure. Because there's no there's no possibility it could ever be anything else. And and I think for a lot of them, I don't think it's so much logic as it is fear that they think that way. But because uh, it opens up too many cans of worms in their worldview to uh, to even dare to consider anything else, so I don't know. I mean, it just uh, um, it just makes you wonder if you know for a brief instant there. I mean, there uh, you know was it was it a, the creation of you know anti matter man or <laughs> was he trying to come through from the come from through from right. a folded dimension? You know. Um, People don't understand exactly how that works. Most people, you know, that there are other dimensions around us, but it's as if they're folded up mm-hmm. and they're encapsulated inside of each other. It's hard to explain, but, you know, it, it might take something, an event like that to open up a gap, you know, between the, between those dimensions. Yeah, I never did quite understand that. I, I guess that that's, that's predominant in, in string theory. That yeah, it is. It's a big part of it. 
Yeah, that there are a number of other dimensions, but they're like you know, uh, curled up, uh, like uh, like like what, like microscopic in size. I mean, I just I don't I don't quite understand that that concept. Well, you so. think about this: what's mi- what we perceive as microscopic may also be macroscopic. It probably just depends on your point of view. True, true, true. Yeah, you know what I mean. All things being relative, supposedly. So, mm-hmm. but now uh, talk. Talking about uh, other dimensions, I was uh, I was talking to uh, uh, Walter Bosley the other day, and um, you know he uh, he wrote a book, and it's it's the title of it uh, um, slips slips my memory at the moment, but it dealt with uh, Disneyland, right? And uh, right, Latitude thirty three. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Right, right, and um, the the one of the one of the points that 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 he discusses in his book was the uh, the 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 interdimensional carousel, <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, are, are are you familiar with the uh, uh, the 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 Disney movie that that it came out uh, it came out on Friday, uh, Tomorrowland. I've just seen ads for it, but not that yeah. much. But I saw that there was something in there about shrinking people down and sending them through a, uh, some sort of transmission. Yeah, it's uh, you know it, uh, it 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 deals with you know like uh, um, this this other other world, other dimension where Tomorrowland is is located, and apparently it was uh, uh, created by. The, the the great minds of the past, you know, you had like Tesla and uh, Edison and uh, Einstein, who all got together and uh, uh, decided that they were going to, you know, do their best to create this utopia. But um, a couple of months ago, um, my daughter was watching one of the Disney channels, and uh, they they ran a spot about Tomorrowland. It was one of these, you know, like the kind of like the the making of Tomorrowland, and you know, right. some of the things and like that. And at one point in this spot, they had a shot of a carousel going around in slow motion, as they were referring to. Um, of where Tomorrowland, you know, like how to get to Tomorrowland or where it may be or, or right. something something along those lines. And when I saw that, I just couldn't help but think about uh, 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 Walter's premise in in his book, Latitude 33. Right. And, uh, and it just, you know, it, I, I, I just, I don't know if it was coincidence, you know, or if there's actually a scene in the movie you know where they where they use that, or right. whether or not it was just you know uh, they were just looking to fill a spot, and you know the editor pulled out some stock footage that he thought looked cool, which is you know I mean that's very that's very probable because I've done the same thing in the past. Well, you, you know, know for for those out there who aren't familiar with Walter's uh, work on that topic, he basically has research that he believes indicates that many things like carousels and and other. Uh, Landmarks and even theme parks have been built at the junction of very powerful junctions of uh, where, where several major ley lines meet and cross, and that these junctures were chosen intentionally in order to maximize, um, uh, let's just say, magical potential by the people who are in the know. So, mm-hmm. very interesting stuff. Yeah, and I just you know, I mean, it just it, it was just a fleeting moment, you know, when I when I saw that shot, and I just it, 
I don't know. Like I said, you know, it's just I I instantly thought about Paul and and his book and considering that this movie is coming from you know Disney Studios. Right. Uh, you know, I just, I, I just wondered at the time if it were, you know, if there was a connection, if it was just, you know, synchronicity, or if somebody was trying to, you know, put a little subliminal message out there. I don't know. You know, right. I maybe see, I maybe see a lot more into it than, well, you know, than the, there actually I mean, is. Then again, theme parks do have carousels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I mean, you know, carousels. I mean, that's one of the first things that uh, that a kid will ride. You know, a little kid will ride when it comes to uh, you know fun rides like that. That's so, right. You know, there, there's always been something kind of you know special and if not mystical, exactly. Concern, you know, and you know, you look at a lot of times the uh, the characters. You know that uh, that are on the carousels. A lot of them. I mean, it's not just horses. A lot of them have have very you know uh, uh, fantastic, uh, uh, imaginary, uh, mythical creatures. Yep, Unicorns. Right. You know, like uh, yep. uh, mermaids, big griffins, fish, all kinds of griffins. Stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. So you know. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I'm interested in in. In seeing that movie, of course, then again, I'm interested in seeing the, uh, the, the Poltergeist remake as well. I generally right. don't, don't, don't care to go see remakes because I loved the original one when it came out in 82. Right. So, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of these things where you're kind of torn. You know, I like, uh, I like a good, uh, I like a good scary movie, but then again, I, when you go and see a movie that's a remake, I would say probably nine times out of ten, I end up disappointed. So, <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, there's only if there's only so many interpretations you can give to an idea. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, you know, since uh, since we're talking about Poltergeist, um, our our guest tonight is uh, is Paul Eno and. Uh, I guess he's been called the most intelligent voice in paranormal research today, and uh, he's been uh, uh, investigating paranormal phenomena and ghosts, and especially uh, a poltergeist, for uh, a long, long time. Uh, he's got uh, uh, he's got a number of just really good books out: uh, uh, "Faces in the Window," first-hand accounts of the paranormal in Southern New England, uh, "Footsteps in the Attic," more first-hand accounts of uh, the paranormal in uh, New England, uh, Turning Home, God, Ghost, and Human Destiny. And then most recently, um, he contributed uh, for the book from Tim Beckley's Global Communications called The Bell Witch Project. So, uh, right. uh, yeah, and uh, he's uh, he is our guest tonight. And uh, uh, Paul is also uh, the host, along with his son Ben, on a podcast, uh, uh, radio talk show called Behind the Paranormal. Uh, uh, you can hear that on W O O N A M twelve forty in uh, New England, and uh, it's uh, I guess it's also broadcast globally um, as well. And right. I've been on that. I've been on that show a couple of times uh, uh, myself. So um, I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking to Paul. So why don't we go ahead and go to our break now? And uh, when we come back, uh, we will have uh, Paul Eno on the line, and uh, we can talk about uh, all of these things that are near and dear to our heart. Yes, indeed. Sounds great. (laughs) 
All right, so I'm Tim Swartz uh, with Mike Mott. You're listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person, and if you're a book person to read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition, join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to mrufo8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. MrUFO8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. 
Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to the Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott here with Tim Schwartz and our very special guest tonight, Paul Eno, a uh, a guy who really chases the unknown. Paul, how are you doing? Oh, pretty fair, Mike. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. So, uh, I understand that you've had quite a history of uh, uh, tracking down the uh, the elusive entities that are known by various names around the world. I I, I happen to of the opinion that a lot of things that people think are ghosts are actually something else entirely but what what exactly uh what exactly is your your take on that well it was it was a long road and very confusing i i went into this in 1970 uh with the the uh, opinion that most people have that these were uh, sort of spiritual entities now the, now the the wrinkle in that was that i was studying for the priesthood at the time <laughs> So um, there, I was interested in the theory that, that maybe these ghosts that people see throughout history and in every culture and everybody knows about were actually souls in purgatory. And for anybody who doesn't have an RC background, uh, Roman Catholic, the purgatory theory was that, uh, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not quite good enough to go to heaven, you're not quite good enough to go to hell. You have to go to purgatory to satisfy their, their pathological need to pigeonhole everything in their narrow Western paradigm. So yeah. uh, that that was that was pretty much what that was about. And the first case that I uh, engaged in in 1971 and 72 in, in this this uh, abandoned village in Northeast Connecticut with a bunch of other seminarians and a photo expert. Uh, pretty much blew that out of the water right from day one. Uh, these people, and I call them people, not ghosts, uh, seem mm-hmm. to be seemed not to be dead at all. Never mind in purgatory. I mean, you could hear right. sounds of daily life, and you know the farm implements banging together. I mean, are there ghosts of plows, uh, horses, dogs? Uh, one guy passed by us in a cart yelling "hya" with a whip, and the whole bit couldn't see him. So right. what the hay was this, you know? Hmm. So th- this was this was uh, entirely. It prompted some questions that other people didn't seem to be asking, and people today don't even. At least some don't even seem to be asking. Like right, you know. Can, can you see so, a parallel with the gin with this? Well, I said, yeah, yeah. We've had shows about that on our own show, uh, possibly. But e- even that is kind of spiritualistic. Uh, right. I think we're dealing more with time than with death. As a matter of fact, I don't think there is any. Any death. I don't think the damn thing even exists. Hmm. Because if you look at the, whether it's the quantum hologram, the quantum multiverse idea, where they're just sort of different sides of the same coin. You know, if, if you're, if that's true, then, then we're living in many parallel worlds at the same time and they're all parallel and, and simultaneous. So how can there be any death even for the body? 
So that really kind of changes the whole thing when it comes to that. And then there are other things it implies because we get into the whole demon thing. Of course, theologically, right. that was that was, but that, but that's that's another horse. So. <laughs> uh, you know, you talked earlier about uh, uh, purgatory, and I remember uh, reading uh, several articles and, and seeing some really interesting pictures of, uh, and I think this, you know, mostly has taken place uh, in Europe about uh, people who claim that they have been visited by, you know, deceased loved ones, relatives, what have you, who who told them that they were in purgatory. And then to prove the point, they they put their hand on, say, like uh, the, the family Bible or the uh, pillow or something like that and left, like, uh, uh, scorch marks of, uh, of the hand. Oh, dear. Have, have you, have, if, have you, if somebody have you seen a that? scorch mark on a Bible, that may not be a very good sign. Well, you know, these, these articles actually had, uh, this, these great pictures of, you know, like these old Bibles with, uh, you know, like a handprint that was scorched like through a number of pages. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that too. But, but, you know, fellas, this is where the questions really arise. One of the things that always bothered me about the, the whole medium thing, Ouija boards and all this, is that people seem to assume that whatever they're being told is true. Mm-hmm. And that's a big yep. assumption and a dangerous one. And and exactly. they assume that what what is doing the telling is is also what it claims to be. That's a really exactly. big if. And very often I found that is absolutely not the case. Uh, the, the whole purgatory thing I, that that brings up a uh, matter of fact. I'm, I'm starting not the book I just finished, but the next one, uh, Dancing Past the Graveyard. It's going to the introduction is going to be uh, an email I received some years ago from a person who uh, claimed that he had become a Roman Catholic because a um, a friend who had committed suicide about 20 years before came to him and said he in a dream and said he was in purgatory. Neither mm. of them had been Roman Catholic before. Right. And uh, so, I mean, uh, th- that assumes a number of things, and it's the assumptions that really, really, dr- f- you know, fry my clams. And that's that you've got the assumption that people, you know, pass over, quote-unquote, whatever that means, and all of a sudden they know everything. There's nothing at all to prove that. I've run into... That's right. Entities who who have no idea what they're doing, where they are, especially suicides, and uh, they're not spirits; they're people in parallel worlds where they never died, and and uh, their consciousness is messed up, and they're having the flashing nexus and all this different stuff. These are all my terms, so sorry if I am saying things that are unfamiliar. But uh, it's just it, it's a big muddle in the sense that you can't assume anything. That's why the motto of our show was "Everything you know is wrong," because hmm. we don't know anything. You know, so so I but the whole spirit thing is is problematic, and especially when something's telling you something, and you really don't know if it's true. Well, you know that that's something I've always said too. I mean, you have no idea who or what you're really talking to. There's no reason to trust anything it has to say. It, no more than you would trust a complete stranger on the street. Precisely, something you can't even see. Yeah, and obviously it's going to tell you whatever fits its agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it may be able to observe you or your, uh, you know your space and time in a totally different way than you do, so it may know things that you don't know. You yes. Know? It's well put. Well put, Mike. Well, th- th- that brings up the issue of what is their agenda. 
And this is where we get into, at least in some cases, what Ben and I refer to as parasites. Now, in the old theological days, you call them demons. I mean, this is right. how our folklore will label something in a way that people can understand when they really can't understand it. All right. And if you look behind a lot of these old folklore terms and stories and labels, you get to perhaps something that might lead us to a more a better understanding of the multiverse or the, the hologram or whatever, but it all kind of gets into, into physics and, and space and time. Right. Well, so. the, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is that, I mean, you know, you've, uh, you, you see this all the time, though, in the, the, the world of the weird, as I call it. I mean, take, take for instance, uh, uh, the UFO phenomena, when people claim that they have been in contact, um, with the, uh, the, the, the beings that come out of, uh, landed, say, like, uh, flying saucers. And, you know, they they've been told that, well, well, you know, we're, we're from Venus, we're from Mars, uh, you know, Alpha Centauri. I mean, the yeah. story, the story always changes. And it 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 just it always seems to be deceptive that you know you're not uh, they're they're not being told the truth and people just uh, I mean a lot of times this is like well you know why why else you know why would these things lie to us I mean you know they come all this way and you know why would they lie and it's yeah. like okay well, yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you know they're coming from all this way yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, th- this is what got us into, uh, us being my son and, and I, into uh, the whole idea of the, the interplay between seemingly unrelated paranormal phenomena. And you have, again, we have a very narrow Western paradigm, and reality is operating on multiple levels uh, in, in, in multiple universes, all simultaneously, seemingly. Anyway, that's what... The science seems to say. And this changes really everything. Uh, often we run into, and, and I've been working with a few people like Kathy Marden and a few others on, on this, and I know you understand it, Tim, because as soon as I talked to you on Tim Beckley's show, I sensed a kindred spirit here and, and some, <laughs> some similar ideas, mm-hmm. is that when you have flap areas, which is what Ben and I research now uh, more than anything else, you've got seemingly unrelated phenomena like ghosts. Uh, the example I often use lately is the biggest case of working on now is Litchfield County, Connecticut. And a family there contacted us in 05 after having read my book, Footsteps in the Attic, which talks about some of this multiverse stuff. And they said, this is really the only thing that explains all the goofy stuff that's going on here. Hmm. And uh, I don't know, how long is your show? I can tell about some of the things that are going on. And, uh, it, yeah, you got plenty of time. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, they would, say, of course, there was the usual, there were apparitions, but they didn't seem to be related to each other. Uh, there were legs hanging from the ceiling, walking as though on a surface that didn't exist in our world. There was a photograph that seemed to show, and this is all over the net, at least on my sites, showing uh, two versions of the same room, seemingly at least part part of the photo, imposed on one another. And it seems to show, and, and nobody noticed this until some a listener of ours wrote in and said, you know, you didn't mention the alien. <laughs> and there is uh, a, a sort of a typical kind of gray alien it looks like a head you know sort of poking past the refrigerator into the frame and um that you know and i'm kind of skeptical about these things but you know i learned photography in in the, the military your your expense uh, some years ago or your parents expense and <laughs> you, you can see that that it, it's not 
the part of the refrigerator. It's it's in front of that. Uh, Mark D'Antonio, a good friend of mine, a dear uh, uh, fellow who is the uh, MUFON's director of uh, uh, video and photo analysis and a real killjoy when it comes to this stuff, uh, so, sort of thinks this is something interesting in this photo, too. So uh, all this stuff was going on in this house. The first time Ben and I went there, he was 13, first case, and we... Um, I was standing out in the in the front yard, kind of a rural place, old farmhouse, 1783. Six generations of the same family have been in this place. Mm. And, a, and a horse, I, I think probably at a rider, went, went galloping by. I couldn't see it. I felt the wind. I heard the sound. The trees rustled. Next, you know, and, and it was... Uh, for, you know, right out of the, right out of the gate, the first uh, time I was there, this stuff started to happen. So by '09, all this stuff had multiplied, and we were doing what we usually do: let's look at beyond the house and the property to other houses in the area. Sure enough, there were things going on there. Uh, before long, people were getting out of their cars, watching UFOs in the sky at night. Became a big deal. There was uh, there were changes in behavior. Locally, now again, maybe this is all coincidence, but you know, I think it's worth noting. People would would drive off the road in numbers that were way beyond statistical probability. When that was noticed in in the media, that changed. People started driving on the wrong side of the road, and, you know, and this kind of thing went on and on. Then the military showed up. There were um, uh, there were ground uh, ground troops, vehicles. Uh, people would walk to the edge of their property and be, and be turned back by by. Uh, Guys in camo carrying M16s. Uh, whether these were military, actual military or contractors, that we've yet to be able to figure out. And uh, then all sorts of uh, strange air traffic, along with the UFOs, black helicopters included. This was all traced down to a farm that was seemingly abandoned in the neighboring town. Now, uh, this was uh, again 2009, 2010. The end of 2010, Ben and I were there with a film crew. And we were, uh, we were making a pilot for a, a show with a rather well-known director. And this farm was, you know, it, it, was, it was clean as a whistle, but, but no farming was going on. And, and, and the question is, at this point, how do, you, how do you cover, how do you investigate a case of this, with this kind of scope, any case? And uh, our answer is, we have a spy network. Now, we have, our show has reporters all over the world, and we... When this sort of thing arises, we kind of make contacts, and we specifically make contacts who don't know each other. So that's what we have in this area. They were feeding us information about this whole thing and in these farms, and they themselves sometimes were having weird things going on. So they were odd. Uh, you know, being former military, I had a clearance, not very high, but I, you know, I had a nodding acquaintance with the intelligence community. There were some very odd, it, it looked like microwave sensors and equipment up on, on utility poles in the middle of nowhere. And uh, a lot of things that just didn't add up. By 2013, the farm buildings in between two silos had been completely torn down and replaced with an enormous metal sheet that could only be seen from the air. And we did manage to get aerial photographs. A year later, 2014, the farm building had, the farm, uh, a barn, I suppose, had been replaced. But there was, a, there was indication that some excavation had gone on underneath this metal sheet. Now, there's still no farming activity. And uh, today, you've got this building. It reminds me of nothing so much as a, I suppose, the design of a British dairy farm uh, with one entrance. Uh, and uh, so, so th this goes on and on. Now we uh, there's a connection 
we have in the uh, intelligence community. And uh, it came back to us, back off. Uh, th- this is not a good place for you to be going. Uh, and then we were never allowed to see the pilot because we went to point three of this triangle, and the triangle started at this farmhouse, to this farm, to this place in the middle of the woods that is very strange, and where there were government trucks coming in and out of, of, of a road across from this, although my son said they were looking in the wrong place. <laughs> and uh, the, the uh, <clears throat> weird things happened there to Ben, and we were never, we've never been allowed to see that. So uh, I heard through the grapevine somebody got to them and told them to back off. So, so this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. And uh, this is not the only place. Rendlesham Forest. Anybody into the UFO uh, subject knows about Rendlesham Forest. The big sightings, 1980, two NATO bases, uh, landings, and all this sort of stuff. I'm sure you've covered that on your show. And um, uh, once again, if you look beyond that incident, you've got hundreds of all sorts of bizarre things going on within 20 miles of that location. When we were there... Uh, when, when, just stop me if I'm rambling on. Oh, no, uh, no, go on. <laughs> well, when we were there in 2012, Ben and I, we spoke uh, in, at, at the local hotel there. All sorts of people came through and said, well, we've had experiences there, too, including these binary code downloads that Jim Penniston, one of the witnesses, was talking about that he received when he touched the one of the landed craft. And they said, that goes on all the time. Just nobody ever asked us. So... <laughs> So you've, you've got tips of the iceberg here, and uh, the Mothman events in the 1960s in the Ohio Valley. I mean, all these, the Skidwalker Ranch, mm-hmm. uh, this thing in Litchfield uh, I refer to as Connecticut Skidwalker Ranch. So, I mean, all over the planet, there seem to be these weird things going on that are all connected to sort of a central core of multiversal intersects. That's how we interpret it anyway. Uh, Bridgewater Triangle, right near where we live in New England. Uh, Bigfoot, UFOs, cops, Bigfoot picked up a back of a police cruiser in the 70s and dropped it, and the poor cop never, never the same again. Um, all sorts of, you know, you name it, it's going on. So, you know, it's the first day of school here, fellas. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the Litchfield case that you're talking about, I mean, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's fascinating considering how it, it's, Starts out as just you know, like you said, you know, almost just like a, like a haunted house case, and it just seems to spiral out of control. Yeah, if you look now again, maybe we're we're drawing uh, connections that where there aren't any, but I rather doubt it. There are too many patterns and and, and too many too many coincidences. Uh, a book, by the way, is coming out about that. That's uh, unfortunately written by somebody else, but uh, hmm. my good my good friend Bill Hall. Uh, has a book coming out called The Haunted House Diaries that's coming out in, in August. and, and uh, But but I think I, I told them, I said, I don't know if this case is ready for prime time because we, we've just got so much else going on here. But he's starting, he's starting it anyway uh, with the farmhouse and things that came from there. There'll, there'll probably be more books. Um, he also wrote about the uh, Bridgeport Poltergeist of 1974 that I was involved with with Ed Lorraine Warren, and that was the uh, uh, world's most haunted house came out last August. And and we had talked in our interviews about this, and I said, see if you can find out something I didn't, I w- wouldn't have thought of it in 1974, and that's, you know, were other houses having issues? Were other things going on? Sure enough, 
There was an increased number of UFO reports. Uh, there were other houses in the area having problems. They didn't dare say anything because the media was all over this. That's the way the warrants worked. And uh, so, I mean, had I known then what I think I know now, that might have been a bigger case, too. Hmm. Yeah, I just uh, I just recently finished that book. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, and you never did get your, uh, you never did get your supper from the I, no, boy, did you? You? You, have a, you have a good memory. No, I never got my dinner. That's why I was, <laughs> Lorraine was a killer cook. I mean, you, you could go down there and, oh, well, my gosh, you never forget it. But, uh, no, that's why I was headed down. I was home from the seminary on vacation and, uh, she, she and Ed had invited me down for dinner and, uh, that's nothing, and that's something you said no to. But the uh, boy, as, as soon as I got there, off we went into Bridgeport, and all hell broke loose. So. Well, let me ask you this: What was the church's feeling about what Ed and Lorraine did? Oh dear! <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it depended on which seminary I was in. I, I attended St. Thomas in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Graduated from there. Uh, they were kind of looking at me with odd looks because I, I had already started to research this at Wadhams Hall seminary in the diocese of augensburg new york they were actually rather sympathetic to this uh they were very open in a way uh ed and lorraine warren actually came and spoke there as a favor to me and i worked with the uh, diocesan exorcist for a while uh, at the local psychiatric hospital and they were um they were rather good but then i i uh, switched over to the orthodox church and when mm. uh, you know continued my graduate theological studies at St. Vladimir Seminary in New York, and they were very, very down on this, and they're the ones who threw me the hell out in 1977. They didn't even want to talk to me, all right? I had about a year or two to go before ordination, so... Uh, <sighs> and, 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 but, but anyway, I, I mean, I got most of the education. There, one of the problems in, in the 70s was that the exorcist had come out in 1973, and, and oddly, one of the people who was a mentor of mine was Father John Nicola, who was the technical advisor for that film, and was the um, probably the greatest uh, exorcism expert of the time, at least in the American church. And he had the uh, rather anonymous job of uh, being an associate director, assistant director of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., this huge church that's a tourist attraction. And th- th- they put him in that job, so he, because he, he did, what, what did he have to do? Nothing. He worked on exorcisms and stuff. So I worked with him, I, I, not on exorcisms, but we, we would consult, and he was a mentor to me and all this stuff. And, and he said, just be careful who you tell that, that you're doing this work. there, And he agreed with me that they had uh, really clammed up after The Exorcist came out, because all of a sudden everybody was interested. And I always said, you know, why don't you just tell people what the belief is, don't worry about it. You know, this you know, this is what we do. This is what we think. And, and you know, but they mean like they're going to listen to me, right? And uh, <laughs> but they didn't. So all they did was make people more curious. So that's when all you know a lot of this stuff started with the interest in ghost hunting and all this stuff. Although that that I don't know. I was one of the first ones, I suppose. But I don't know. But it it was just a mess. So seventy seven, they threw me the hell out, and uh, I became a journalist. The only other thing I knew how to do was write. And I still had to clam up because I ended up editor of a weekly newspaper in Rhode Island, and you still couldn't tell people you were the local ghost researcher. What would that do for your credibility? So I oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not then you could. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but 98, 1998, the cat was out of the bag and because you know, I wrote uh, a book that was, was I, the first book I'd written since 77. So, uh, 
the, that was kind of so now I have all the several different hats. I'm still a working journalist, but um, so but people know now because I do the show and all that. So but, you know, no harm done now. I'm too old to worry about it anyway. But uh, now I have problems in the seminary because of this. Well, why don't wow. you uh, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, uh, the Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut case? Uh, because I mean, I you know I before reading the book, I I have vague memories. Of, of of hearing about the case, uh, what had actually happened, because I mean it got um, nationwide coverage, but you know I mean away from the area it was mostly just you know like you know little tiny articles and and, and things like that. So now, how did you get involved with it? Oh, I, just a comment on just I don't know about that at the Warrens' house. We were getting calls from the press as far away as Australia and London, so mm-hmm. everybody was interested. But no, I got involved simply by uh, going trying to go to dinner with Ed Lorraine, <laughs> and uh, I pulled in there to their house, kind of in the woods of Monroe, Connecticut, and and the Lorraine came leaping out the front door and said, "Are you in a high spiritual state right now?" Hmm. And I really kind of wasn't because I was trying to decide whether to, to, to join the Orthodox Church. And here I was a Roman Catholic seminarian. I mean, that's kind of an unprecedented situation. Most seminarians don't leave the church, you know. So, uh, oh, my gosh. So I said, well, I said, yeah. So uh, also, so the, the four of us who were involved were Ed Lorraine and myself and Father William Charbonneau, Father Bill Charbonneau. Now, he became so famous that people would write Father Bill Bridgeport on envelopes and he'd get the letters. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, w- w- I went down to uh, with Ed to uh, the house down there on Lindley Street in Bridgeport, and people often comment on, on the tiny size of this house, and it was really a very small three-room bungalow. So how could all this stuff be going on? Well, it was, but my question is, how could all this stuff be going on and then be blamed on a 10-year-old kid? Mm. You know, so, uh, I, you know, it would take all day to tell you all the things I saw down there, but I mean, it... it the pattern was very typical of a poltergeist. In um, most cases, you have uh, just a few, pound, you know, a little bit of rapping on the walls and then turning into pounding. And th- this is my parasite theory, that these things are just life forms th- that feed on the energy that is produced when we're upset, angry, uh, annoyed, yep, exactly. things, things of that kind. And so uh, as these things began to happen the people would get more frightened more angry more annoyed and the thing would get stronger right you, you know so, so that's what seemed to be happening uh by the uh, saturday before we got the day before we got there uh the family had a habit of uh, of going to new york city to shop now the, the bridgeport in new york about 60 miles apart and off they went and they came back and uh the uh television in the little girl's room was on her bed you know, not even, not even, even as if it had fallen off the shelf, it had been moved. Uh, then all, then a bunch of other things started to happen. Pictures started to fly off the wall. Uh, Jerry Gooden told me that, that the, uh, kitchen drawer opened and all these knives went flying around the kitchen. So he, mm. you know, retreated. And this, this stuff started to happen. They had one hell of a night, pardon the pun, and, by 8 o'clock the next morning, they had called friends for help, and one of them, this uh, John uh, Halsworth, a patrolman in Bridgeport Police Department, had called the Warrens and had uh, said what was going on. Uh, they had already been there 
before I got there, but then they came back to the house. I guess Lorraine came back to uh, uh, to meet me, and uh, Father Charbonneau was coming. And I'm not exactly sure how you know who was where just that morning. But down we went at about two o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, I walked in, and the place looked like it had been hit by a bomb. The the uh, Mr. Gooden said that the the little girl's baby carriage was being pushed around, and uh, the house by some unseen force it all closed and were taken out of drawers and put into the baby carriage mm-hmm. now it was a while before i actually saw anything but i was in there with a bunch of policemen and and uh firefighters and the refrigerator levitated and put itself down we all saw that that's in some of the police reports and, and bill reports that in the book and uh, uh the, one of the things probably that was most uh bizarre that happened to me and bill reports this as well uh, was on monday night the next night because we were there for you know the whole period there of the two and a half days and uh i was standing the warrants had left to do an interview with somebody and then i was in the house with uh john sopko from the bridgeport post a neighbor and the gooden family the three goodens and uh we began to feel we were playing monopoly because the kid, that was her favorite game. Little 10-year-old girl. Favorite game. All of a sudden, things started to get strange. In the mm. kitchen, you could feel, you could almost feel this energy coming out of the kitchen. And Mr. Gooden went into the kitchen. And all of a sudden, he started singing in a beautiful bass voice uh, some stuff from the Latin Mass. And I said, okay. So uh, he came <laughs> back uh, back out. And you could you could just barely see four figures gauzy kind of things coming down the hallway and uh the the energy in the room was really amazing i was reading a prayer from an orthodox prayer book that 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 later was became sort of went down in the folklore as being an occult book that marcy carried around and that she was interested in the occult that's nonsense that was my prayer book with one of those russian crosses on it with the three bars right and then uh, in the book it had uh, English on one side and Church Slavonic on the left, which somebody interpreted as Sanskrit, and uh, it was an occult. But, you know, so, but that was so that was all nonsense. But I'm reading this prayer. One of the things came. O- I put her behind me. One of these things came over to me, stood right in front of me, and I, I just instinctively was fearful for the little girl. So I, I kind of pushed against it. Right. It pushed back. I felt a physical structure, including like what seemed like bones. Hmm. And I said, what? I was totally confused. And I'm so, so it, it got around me and threw her across the room. And at that point, I pulled everybody out of the house. Fortunately, the cops had cordoned off the street, so we didn't walk out in the middle of a crowd. And uh, it was it started to sleep. Uh, I, I went over to a, a neighboring house because, you know, there were no cell phones in these days. And... Um, uh, the, the kid said, Mommy, the ki- the priest wants to use the phone. I wasn't in clericals or anything. I was just, you know. So in I go. Right. Something knocked on the door behind me. And I, I called. I, the kid said, Oh, there's somebody at the door. There's nobody at the door, Mommy. I said, You want to make a bet? And I called <laughs> the warrants from there. It took them an hour to get back to the house because it, this is from 10 miles away because of the of the traffic and the crowds. So they came back, everything had calmed down. When we walked into the house, uh, they were speculating on the radio why we had left the house. So, uh, so th- this, this was, this was a zoo, it was a circus, and it descended into chaos because we were standing around waiting for the Diocese of Bridgeport to authorize an exorcism. 
So, you know, you have to do that in the Roman Church. And these people were Roman Catholics, so we, you respect their religion. And the, the Warrens were all supposedly Roman Catholic, but it was kind of a pop theology. It really didn't match. Mm. So anyway, that uh, it sort of uh, descended into chaos. The girl was, uh, after they threw us out the next day, apparently what happened was that the next day, you know, I had to go take a shower or something. So I, w- I went back to my house in East Hartford, get something to eat. And on the way back, I heard WCBS in New York reporting that the uh, the cops had declared that the case was a hoax perpetrated by the kid. Hmm. Wait a minute. What, what is this? My job was to watch the kid to make sure she wasn't doing that. Right. So, so 2 o'clock in the afternoon, this is on Tuesday, I show up at the house. Mrs. Gooden, who had hugged me and made me promise to come back, popped her head out and said, Officer, throw him off our property. Ah. So off I went, and I went back to the Warrens, and uh, they were holed up in, in their house there, and they, they explained what had happened, and um, so so we kind of set up our headquarters there for the next uh, two days, and I had to go back on Wednesday. It was Thanksgiving on Thursday. So um, it, Ed and I were on the radio battling with the cops for a couple of days, and, and uh, Bill Bill does a great job in... in um, uh, world's most haunted house of really bringing the whole story together, and there were things I, I never knew that he discovered. Hmm. So it was a it was a disaster. And what happened later? Well, the girl went to the uh, the psychiatric hospital. The things supposedly happened there. That's what we were running into in Augsburg, by the way. Things would happen, and they wouldn't understand it. And then uh, they um, the whole thing was. Um, you know, they had to sink their tree and Christmas tree in concrete that year, supposedly, because it kept moving around. Uh, they sold the house eventually. I don't know what kind of schmuck bought it, but somebody did. And uh, <laughs> the little, oh. the, the parents died uh, in the 80s, and the little girl, uh, who was 50 years old, uh, died just this past, I believe it was February. Oh, my we goodness. We found out in Ohio. And uh, apparently after a very sad life. Yeah, you really. Yeah, she had, she had went. Stuff. She had went back to uh, Canada, didn't she, to look for her uh, her birth parents? Yeah, that's her right. Birth mother, at least. Uh, yeah. Iroquois, I believe Iroquois had, or Mohawk. No, I think it was Iroquois. It had been adopted by the Goodens, who had lost a son previously, and she uh, went back to Ontario, as I understand it, to search for her family. I don't know if she ever found them, but I, I think she might have because I think she had a brother she was in touch with, and right. then moved back to Ohio. Uh, moved in with some guy who said he really didn't know her very well. Ah. And uh, I don't know if they were a couple or just sort of sharing a house. And uh, then she, she had MS and was in a wheelchair. You know, very, very sad. Now, I've ah. seen people with MS. It's a terrible, it can be terrible. And uh, sure enough, that was, uh, you know, she passed away in, the, in February of this year. Do you think that her Native American heritage and being adopted had anything to do with what happened? Well, a lot of people ask that. Um, you know, it may be, maybe not. I mean, some of the most positive people I, I know are Native Americans and, and right. shamans as well. Right. You know, uh, in the sense that maybe she was more spiritually um, um, attuned, adept or attuned. That's possible. Yeah. I think it might have had more to do with the atmosphere in the house. She was absolutely smothered by her parents, who, as I say, had lost a son earlier. And that was another uh, trigger to people saying, aha, the son was jealous and came back to haunt them. You know, I don't look at it that way. That that doesn't seem to be how it works. I think the, um, the negative spirituality of old-time Roman Catholicism, and I don't mean 
to, to denigrate Roman Catholicism. I respect it because that's where I learned to love God. But right. I, I just, it was very, very negative spirituality. And uh, I've seen more people in that position have trouble with this kind of stuff than, than almost anybody else. Mm. You know, which is, is really interesting. Uh, so maybe it attached to her. And I find the, these things, no matter how many of them there may be operating in a house or, or in, on a, on, in an area, they seem to attach to one person at a time. And they do seem to work in packs, these parasites. Right. And so uh, that, that, I've seen them move on to somebody else. If we, if we break them away from one, they'll move on to somebody else in the family and this kind of thing. So I, I don't know if the Native American connection had had that much to do with it. Right. Well, now, what, uh, uh, what's your interpretation, then, of uh, uh, the, the, the parasites that you, know, that, that you came into contact with? Because, I mean, it, uh, you said uh, you, you pushed back at it, and you actually felt a physical presence. Yeah, but it's it, happened you know, several times. Yeah, but, but, I mean, they seem to operate, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, both in the physical world and in the, in the non-physical well, I don't, I don't know if physical and non-physical is, is, is a meaningful way to put it, Tim. Uh, I, I don't know. Th- these things seem to be multiversal creatures. I've seen them operating in other cases almost like uh, some sort of octopus with you know, tentacles, as it were, in one world and another one in another, just gathering food. I had a case hmm. in uh, uh, King of Prussia, Pennsylvania in 04, and uh, there was uh, some kind of... Um, negative event i think it was a murder going on in the backyard in some parallel reality that that could be to us the past or could be the future and and then there was feeding off that and then it was it was in the house uh feeding off these two girls who were were roommates and having a negative time and and then they said the house was haunted and the the so-called ghosts thought the girls were ghost haunting them. They were just going about their day somewhere or somewhere else, and the thing was feeding off them too. So you had mm-hmm. one entity seemingly feeding off three different sets of people in three separate parallel worlds. I mean, I mean, this really gets nuts. So in the Bridgeport house, I think we weren't dealing with what parapsychology says we were dealing with. They all came piling in from Duke University after we left, uh, you know, trying to, to make it fit the 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 paradigm uh and you know the idea that this is an agent uh in this case the little girl marcy you know all upset or reaching puberty or something producing this all this activity you know i think that's nonsense that's only because they don't know how else to explain it and they don't take quantum physics seriously enough i think these are real parasites uh they get to a certain point and they get enough to eat they get strong enough you can have a poltergeist and beyond that I look back at the ten different exorcisms I participated in, and I think that that's what happened with that. They get beyond the poltergeist stage to the point where they bond with someone who has to really agree to it in a funny kind of way, you know, in some tacit manner, and then you end up with, with what folklore calls possession. Hmm. And so, I mean, I think that you can trace a lot of trouble back to these parasites. So I think it was a parasite situation rather than what, what parapsychology might say. Sir, you all. Oh, go, go ahead, Mike. I'm oh, sorry. sorry. I was just going to ask. Do you think that these parasites are the equivalent of what the Bible called unclean spirits? Yeah, exactly. They had to be cast out of people. Yeah, they're yeah. They're, uh, they're present again in, throughout the the, uh, the human experience. Uh, you you can find them. As a matter of fact, I think they may have influenced uh, our remote past. I mean, why is it that the, that the Sumerians? 
they were the first known civilization, were, right. were monotheistic, seemingly, mm. or at least semi-monotheistic, you know, worshipping one god, or, 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 or a, a, the, the pattern at that time was, the world past was, it was a, almost a trinity, a family, uh, a mother god, a father god, and, and a child god, who was usually us. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, overnight practically, you got 5,000 gods and demigods and demons and spirits and all that the Sumerians were, were worshipping. And, uh, you know, I don't understand that unless you've got parasitical entities coming in. And I often point to the Bell Witch case of the 18, uh, 1817, 1821 in Tennessee, famous case, uh, where, where you had an entity, or, or I think actually several different entities, uh, just sort of going around and, and like, taking over. I mean, and had this not been a, you know, a strict Protestant community, that might have happened. But I think it did happen in the ancient world. And well, so uh, that, they're present that, in all our, all our cultures and history. Exactly. And so that leads into deeper questions. And, you know, you'll see a lot of stuff about this, especially nowadays with these so-called reality paranormal shows and stuff. But do you think it's possible that entities like this can somehow get their hooks into somebody and then continue to have a hold on them after they pass away? Well, that's a good question. I have seen uh, multi-generational parasitical situations. I was in California one time lecturing, and some there was just a lady who drew my attention throughout the whole lecture, not because she was particularly pretty, but because she, you, know, you could tell there was something negative going on here. And, and she came up to me afterwards, and, I, and she said, you know, you're right, we, we've been, my whole family for generations has had this problem. And, and then she told me what it was. There obviously was parasitical. But um, so, but the, to answer your question, it gets, you have, you have to answer the question, well, what does it mean to pass on? Hmm, you know, right. what, what do you mean, death, you know? As I said, I don't think there is any such thing. So what happens when the, you know, we go to a funeral, obviously the body wears out. I think that, um, across these many worlds, we are kind of one, you know? Uh, it's like a tree. And the leaf falls off in the autumn and it dies and then, and, but you're not the leaf. You're the whole tree. You know, the, the leaf is just one, aspect of you one one facet and i think that when you have a possession situation and it's not remedied and, and, it, and it can be very quiet and i think the nature of the possession is that is just what i said all this life is kind of shared across the whole biosphere and it's not just with other people i think that when there is a bond between a parasite and a human being that parasite has found where you and it are one being. Whatever corner of the multiverse that might be, it's pretty strange. But I think that's where that bonding can occur. You know, when you, when you meet somebody, and people talk about soulmates, you know, and, or all this yeah. stuff, and, and or, or very good friends, you know, you meet somebody, you just hit it off right away. You know, you're close to where you are, the one, I think, you're both aware and in touch of, with that. So when you've got parasites... And passing on, what is passing on? I mean, it seems like your consciousness just sort of uh, goes to where it already is in many, many different parallel worlds. If you've been a selfish jerk in this life, you take the path of least resistance, as does anything else in nature, and you're probably aware, you're probably just a selfish jerk uh, in many other worlds. You know, if you're Mother Teresa, uh, who realizes that it's not about you, it's about all of us then maybe you, you have less of that. So if you are a, a person that has such a negative connection in one life, yeah, you might very well 
have that connection in many parallel worlds too. So whether you carry it with you uh, is not the question. It's already there. Yeah. If that's well, your you know, dominant that, that ties in with the whole idea of, of, of you know, negative entities getting their hooks into people, you know, and taking them basically to hell or damnation or whatever. It's the same sort of an idea. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think there's a lot of personal responsibility there. You, know, you look at the theology of hell, and it's pretty much uh, from the ancient church. And it's pretty much hell is where God is not, you know. Yeah, the Bible talks about you know consuming fires and all this stuff, but 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 that that if you look at the actual Greek, it implies fires that you know it, you know we are meant to be with God. I don't know how theologically you want to get here. Right. When you're when you're not with God, it's hell. That's our nature, mm-hmm. and and that's an action we ourselves take. So it's not not like a demon can carry you off to hell. You have to agree to it, and you have to make your own hell, really, by separating yourself from God. I mean, again, that that's theological. You can put it in other ways. So um, it's really onus is really on us. And as I said, you, I don't think a possession can take place without a tacit agreement on the part of the the possessee, so to speak. <laughs> because right. you know what I've seen in I saw this in the Bridgeport case with the little kid. People like the attention. You know, you see a lot of these people, and they're using Ouija boards and stuff, and they say, well, you know, maybe I got an F on the math test, or maybe I'm a loser here and there, or lost my job. But, hey, this cosmic being is paying attention to me. I must be important. That's really powerful. And that's where a lot of it goes wrong. You know, people, it's ego. You know, and then they feed on that, too. So... Anything is possible. As far as them getting their hooks and you dragging you to hell without your consent, I, I don't think that's quite how it works. I mean, you make your own hell. Hmm. Well, you know, that's like uh, the uh, uh, the Enfield poltergeist case uh, from the 70s in uh, England. Um, I just recently saw a... Uh, uh, a news report that was done at the time uh, that the, the you know that the, that the poltergeist activity w- w- was happening. They were talking to the, the the two little girls who seemed to be you know the uh, part of the focus of it, and these girls are obviously enjoying themselves uh, in front of the camera. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. they're 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 smiling. They're 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 having a good time. One of them is. Um, uh, what speaking, channeling? I'm not quite sure what the proper term would be. You know, I mean, she's she's uh, the the voice of the, uh, the 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 poltergeist is is coming out of her. You know, in the interview, and and you can actually hear like uh, uh, knocks, raps going on on the walls around them as they're talking. Uh, but these girls, I mean, they're they're really enjoying it. Uh, you know, they yeah. they obviously are enjoying the attention. Well, that's where it gets iffy and things start to get blurred. I mean, you know, instead of going back to their boring lives and seeking meaning, you know, they're getting all this attention and uh, the press eats it up. I'll never forget the site uh, in Bridgeport in 74 of, of the cat. Now, the cat is was sort of a sideshow to this whole thing. And the cat, whose name was Sam, supposedly could talk. Hmm. Now... Jerry Gooden swore to me that that the cat would come up to the top of the stairs, demand to be let out of the cellar, pound on the door, <laughs> and call him a dirty Frenchman. All right? <laughs> and, uh, 
So, uh, but I met the cat because I spent a couple of days with the cat and uh, the little girl who was never far from the cat, uh, her, her only friend, she called it. That, that's kind of telling. Mm-hmm. And uh, she would, she would kind of throw her voice. And I will never forget the sight of network reporters from CBS, NBC, and ABC standing around with mics pointed at the cat, begging it to say something. Oh, God. You know, sort of icon of the media sometimes, you know. But uh, I didn't think it was anything to that. But, you know, this, this, this stuff gets embellished and it can get, it can get, really get carried away. So the lot of these course, cases, unless your reporters aren't going to want to admit they were fooled by a little girl. Or, or a cat, for that matter. Or moment. a cat. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting. Um, when you were talking about uh, uh, waiting at one point for them to uh, approve to come in and um, do a, do an exorcism or or, or a blessing, but um, boy, I tell you, you know, time after time, the cases that I've uh, uh, that I've worked on and and read about. It's like any time you attempt to do that, it never works, and it just seems uh, to to uh, aggravate the situation. Well, sometimes, yeah. Uh, I mean, you try to take people where they are, but you know, Ben and I long ago settled on on a, on a remedy that that always works. At least, at least, I've never seen it fail. And that's um, we call it the Peter Pan theory. Think mm-hmm. happy thoughts, because mm-hmm. when you're when you're praying using holy water, what are you doing? Well, holy water is 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 the the basic. Uh, you know, it's hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen, the basic building block of the physical universe or multiverse in most places. And, uh, you know, you have a bunch of people who concentrate on it with positive energy, and that's your holy water, really. So I, I've seen that work. But beyond all that, just being positive, coming together with your family, that seems to repel these things. I got rid of the worst poltergeist I ever dealt with, which wasn't Bridgeport. It was a year later in New Haven. Uh, I got rid of it with a joke book. Hmm. You know, because uh, there were seven of these things. They seemed to what you should have seen this place. It was the closest thing I ever saw to, to what Hollywood conceive, how Hollywood conceives of this. And I almost got pancaked by a chair. You know, it's really interesting. And uh, the things had pretty much run their course and it lasted for a year, which is very long for a continuous poltergeist activity. Mm-hmm. And, um, when we went in there, it was um, uh, pretty much run out. And I had the little girl. There was a 14-year-old girl who her mother had sent away to, so, so as not to be this uh, involved in this. And the woman herself would come in and, and fight with the thing every day, make it worst thing she could do. But anyway, we, we all got together, four of us, a friend of mine who called me in. And we yucked it up all evening with, with these jokes, which were you know, very respectful. And they were you know, not dirty jokes, you know, just, very, just very funny stuff. That thing was never seen or heard from again. Huh. You know, because I think we kind of, the last nail in the coffin, and it was already running out of energy anyway. But uh, I wouldn't approach it initially with a joke book, but I think that that kind of thing illustrates the Peter Pan theory. Just keep it positive, pull together. And that's why you see houses sometimes where uh, <clears throat> you know, all sorts of awful things may have happened, but the people are so positive they just keep it secure, and the things can't get a hook get their, get their hooks in. Uh, you know, if Charles Manson had moved into certain places, well, forget about it. But, but uh, it's just it's it's the it's the people. The people are very much um, involved in what is going on and why it's happening and and how it turns out. So, the Peter Pan theory. That's what works. Well, you know, in the whole scheme of things, you know, uh, you know 
poltergeist activity and, and, and destructive hauntings like that are really relatively rare considering, uh, you know, all the personal problems and, you know, family dynamics that go on all over the planet all of the time. I mean, why do you think that these cases end up happening? And, and, and why aren't they happening all the time? Well, that's a good question, Tim. I'm, I'm glad they're not happening all the time. I mean, everybody yeah. has wear and tear in their marriages and in their families. Some people have awful situations, and this doesn't occur. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's only one of the ducks that has to be lined up for these things to sort of occur. Uh, I, we used to bring a soil, he, well, he passed away, but we used to bring a soil engineer with us, hydrologist. And he said, you know, it's funny, the places where most of the stuff is happening, there are high water tables with sand, sandy or clay soils. And here, you know, here by the East Coast, we have a lot of sandy and clay soils, right? Maybe right. that's why New England is, quote-unquote, more haunted, unquote, than some other place. But in any case, this uh, <clears throat> we started to put these things together, and there are certain geotechnical patterns, geotechnic patterns. And if it is in a, an area where uh, these things are more common, like a, a flat area, like a triangle, I mean, there is, a, there is something to be said for that, then you're likely to have it. If you have high-tension wires running near the area within even 500 feet, that, that, can, that seems to, uh, to stir things up. And why? Because all these things affect electromagnetic energy and the conductivity of that. And electromagnetic energy just means that, that they, this is around, it, it surrounds an electrical field, you know, mm-hmm. and um, there's some sort of, uh, uh, if it, you know, uh, well, I'll tell you what, that's why it, the only use I have for an EMF meter is if uh, it's digital and it goes into the negative range. That means the polarity on the field is reversed and something weird's going on because you get, I think, energy exchange between two worlds. That's how I interpret it. Mm-hmm. But it's simply because, uh, you know, certain areas might not have the proper geotechnical factors involved. Uh, parasites might be simply busy elsewhere. You know, right. there are only so many of them. Uh, so yeah, I think it, it, those, everything has to be lined up for this to occur. Limestone and sandstone seem to also be very uh, conductive for that type of stuff. Yeah, at times, and crystal. I mean, again, it, it all, any number of combinations can can be, be triggers, but you have to have the factors. You have to have the, uh, the right. components, you know. So, you so have to have the perfect storm, so to speak. Well, effectively, and I don't know if I agree with you, Tim, that these things aren't common. I think that uh, knock-down, drag-out stuff like this may be. But smaller mm-hmm. events that maybe never get to that point might be more common. Um, there was a house in, in well, there was a case in Bristol, Connecticut, also in 1975, where um, the, uh, the the ashtray just picked itself up and you know just moved across the room and sat itself on another table. I mean, things like that will will get your attention, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a, a poltergeist problem. You know, of the of the of the, uh, of the scope you of, of the size you had bridgeport or enfield you know mm-hmm. so every case is unique and uh i remember tim talking to you about that case uh, with the stones that that really fascinated me i, I never had the the stone thing happen to me although my ancestor did um, oh really Nic- nicholas disborough in, in the 1683 in hartford connecticut where there were more witches execute uh more witch trials than there were in salem many wow. years later yeah my uh great great how many times great grandfather Nicholas was uh, uh, the victim of a poltergeist? Stones appeared. 
sometimes near the floor, sometimes near the ceiling, just as you described. Although I don't know if he had the presence of mind to use a magic marker and throw him out in the back like you did. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that drew a lot of attention, and there were some more witch accusations after that. So, uh, mm. uh, But I've never had the stone thing happen, I must say. Well, you know, I, I, I made the mistake that I didn't realize it until years later when somebody made the comment that, uh, you know, I, I took the stones with me when all was said and done. And I, you know, I've had a number of people say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. But nothing yeah. ever happened. You know, nothing ever yeah. happened. But I mean, you know, people have said, oh, you know, you could have, you know, invited whatever it was, you know, going on, you know, to, to come with you doing that. Well, like, that reminds well. me, reminds me of the, the Ed Lorraine Warren and, and their, their museum. So called, you know, um, and that stupid doll Annabelle from The Conjuring. I knew her very well. Uh, she was a Raggedy Ann doll, first of all, and uh, she was just sort of the centerpiece of this museum. And they had or, or have, they were artists actually. And uh, they, from between their house and this barn where they had a studio, there was an underground passage you could just walk. And uh, in a corner of this passage, where it, where it turned the corner, was was. Annabelle and all this stuff they, they said they'd gotten from cases that were uh, really negative. And, oh, no, Paul, don't ever touch anything, they said, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but Annabelle, Raggedy Ann doll, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I, when they started making that movie, I said, oh, my gosh, I said, that's, I knew that doll. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that was about. I knew that doll before she was famous. Before, yeah, I knew her when. So, the, <laughs> but the Warrens, uh, I, I didn't know them uh, when that case took place. And, uh, I don't know. I was almost involved in the Amityville case, but I was up at, you know, I, I had classes at the seminar. I couldn't, and it was too far away. But Lorraine, I, and I'm trying to find the letters now. Lorraine wrote to me during that case, and I bet those letters would be very interesting. Um, you know, because, I, but anyway, it's, it's, th- there were a lot of questions that I had about some of these things, and we finally split up around 78, because, uh, you know, I dared to question the gods of paranormal research, you know. And so, <laughs> right, uh, you, that was yeah. about it. So anyway, <laughs> but live and learn. They, they were, they were, they were good friends anyway. And, uh, well, do, do you think that the, the assumption of negativity with Annabelle actually fueled it? Sort of like a battery charging that it, therefore it became an entity in its own right or, or, or things attached to it. You, well, you understand I, what I'm don't. saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying, but you know, I don't know. I mean, I've seen quote unquote haunted objects, uh, but I yeah. think that from what I've seen generally, and I've seen cases where, not a lot, but sometimes where people have moved a piece of furniture and all hell's broken loose. Mm, you know, yeah. well, why would that be? Well, I, the way I see it, there's a certain consciousness wave a physicist might, might, look at it this way a consciousness wave picture it as a vinyl record we're all old enough to know what those were and uh there there were like lumps in the record well those lumps just say those are things uh, people you know people you love things things you have that that you you value and when somebody else grabs it moves it it kind of kind of messes up your consciousness wave in a way, and I think that that might have been the thing with haunted objects. We have a mansion down here in Newport. I live in Rhode Island. Mansion down here in Newport, uh, where there's a haunted suit of armor and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the owner asked me, "What the hey is going on with this?" And, and I said, "Well, that's pre- yeah. It's people are fooling around with stuff that really it still belongs to somebody else somewhere, somewhere in the multiverse." And I think that the the, the waves can kind of clash from time to time. So Annabelle, I don't know if she the, the she was possessed. I don't know. I wasn't there. I did know her, but she'd calmed down by that time. And uh, I, um, I, I think it's more a, a consciousness wave kind of thing, uh, or it was exaggerated. 
or they thought it was the you know i mean i you can't trust hollywood to get it right so uh you know i don't know so, so i just i don't know i think these things are exaggerated Mm-hmm. Well, uh, gentlemen, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, take our break now for uh, a couple of minutes. And uh, Paul, when we come back, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the book that you wrote uh, with uh, uh, Tim Beckley, uh, the Bell Witch Project. Sure. Uh, uh, that's that's uh, I tell you that's that's a case that I mean I read that one when I was a kid and scared the hell out of me yeah that's a really really uh, spooky case for sure yeah classic yeah. parasites and i, and I yeah and i also found it very interesting that it, there seems to be a connection there to the earth to the to the caverns beneath that property yeah but anyway i guess yeah. we could take a quick break and uh when we come back we could talk about it all right, so you're listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Swartz. Tonight we're talking with Paul Eno. We'll be right back, so stay tuned. team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology preventative maintenance and networking support hardware and custom build computers let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget call key information solutions now 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. We're rewarding you for something you already do, listening to us. It's Radio Loyalty, and it's an easy way for you to get free stuff. All you do is sign up. Go ahead and click the banner now. You'll learn points as you listen, points you can trade in for great products and services in the Radio Loyalty store. You can earn even more points when you share your favorite station with friends on Facebook and Twitter. Radio Loyalty, it's free to sign up, so click the banner to join now. Free stuff for you just for listening to this station. 
Yo, we got your attention? Here's how it works. You click on the radio loyalty banner right now and sign up. Then you keep on listening like you already do. But now you earn points. Those points add up, and you can trade them in for cool stuff in the radio loyalty store. Earn more points by sharing your station with friends on Facebook and Twitter, answering surveys, and by using the apps in the new player's app store. Pretty simple. Free stuff just for doing what you already do. Radio loyalty. Click the banner to join now. Okay, welcome back to the Outer Edge. Today we're talking with Paul Enos. And uh, uh, by the way, Mike, we uh, just uh, just got through playing here on our break, uh, uh, Tribal Music Warriors, and the song oh, was, yeah, the song was Heaven Six Sinawali, uh, I think is how you pronounce it. So this is uh, this is a, a group that uh, uh, Mike. Uh, uh, friends of yours, or did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron Kozakowski, who is who actually runs a major martial arts uh, enterprise up in Connecticut, I believe, and mm. uh, Philippine martial arts, and uh, some him and some of his his uh, martial artists put that together. Well, I'm I'm, I'm really happy that uh, that we can uh, play their music here on the outer. Yeah, I really appreciate them letting us use it too. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Paul, before we left, uh, I said I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the the Bell Witch, and uh, you, uh, you you contributed uh, some material for uh, Tim Beckley's uh, the the Bell Witch Project, and uh, you know it's, it's like I said before. I mean this this was a case that uh, boy, I mean it, it was one one of the first things I ever read when it came to you know like ghosts and poltergeist, and I mean it's it's a terrifying uh, uh, case, and I just you know, I've often wondered how much of it um, actually happened, or, and and how much you know got embellished over the years as, as story. You know, as the story was yeah. told. Well, the more years, the more embellishment. Sometimes, oh yeah, but it is, yeah, it is an interesting case, and uh, the, the the sources are. Um, uh, not questionable, but you know you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt sometimes. But I had a chance to look at some sources when um, the uh, producers of the the American Haunting film with Donald Sutherland and Sissy Spacek from a few years back, mm-hmm. uh, they got in touch and they wanted me to work with Andrew Warney to do a, a DVD to go with the DVD of the film. <laughs> and so uh, that never got anywhere because they cut the budget. But you know I had a chance to to look into this uh, in some depth. And it, it seemed to me to be a classic, they were interested in my parasite interpretation, the, the classic parasite situation that started small and got bigger. Now, as the story goes, uh, John Bell was uh, trotting around in a cornfield, uh, I believe it was 1817, and he happened to see this weird red-eyed creature, kind of like a, a, right. a dog-like or horse you know, cross, something like that, and it right. took a shot at I didn't know some of that period would have done, and uh, didn't have any effect on it. Disappeared. So that seems that that's generally thought of as the beginning of 
that uh, that case or the major part of it. And it went on and on, and it seemed to, as in the classic parasite situation, seemed to go after the young girl. And uh, then it got stronger as people got more annoyed or whatever. And uh, it, there seemed to be four of them, at least from what I can gather. And uh, it got to the point where it would uh, sing in a very beautiful singing voice. Uh, it would tell hilarious jokes. And it would, uh, at least on one occasion, it seemed to... Uh, memorize every sermon in every church at Robertson County that particular <laughs> Sunday and would repeat it. Now, of course, naturally, this this got out, and people would come just to see the antics of this, this thing. And it right. uh, pretty much abused the girl for a while there. And then, all of a sudden, uh, it, it started to get so strong that it, it left the house and was able to kind of go around the county giving agricultural advice, and uh, the, the, you're talking about the caves there that supposedly saved the life of a little boy who was uh, trapped in a cave. And, but it did what right. parasites do. It kind of kept people guessing. You never knew if it was telling you the truth, and there were certain buttons that would push. There were several occasions it, it sent people on treasure hunts, and right. uh, one occasion they had this huge boulder. People, you know, went, broke their backs trying to move this boulder there's nothing under it and it kind of you know, laughed and, right. and uh, this sort of thing now what was interesting and this is a pattern i've seen in in parasite cases people would ask it where what it was where it came from and what its purpose was and it usually wouldn't answer but but all they could get out of it was that it had native american connections and had been in the area for centuries hmm. right and, and that is what is really interesting, because I've noticed with parasites, especially of the lower five or six different orders, they uh, they will uh, often, the longer they spend attached to a human host or any host or, or in our world or a certain others, I think they tend to forget their own origins. Hmm. And I've had lower order parasites who will... Uh, are attached to certain people. I'm thinking of of, a, of an artist, rather well-known artist in New York City. Can't give you the person's name, but uh, this person had been really persecuted by one of these things for like 25 years. And this thing was afraid to detach because it didn't know where to go or what to do. It was afraid. Hmm. And... So, I mean, th this is very interesting. So, um, the Bell Witch was an example, I think, of, of this kind of thing. But it also is an example of, uh, with the Native American connections, of what might have been tribal gods kind of thing. In that area, down the whole, through the whole Midwest, of course, there, and particularly in that area, were the mound builders. The Native Americans, we don't know much about, but they, they built all these animal-shaped mounds. A lot of people never heard of this. Animal-shaped mounds, right. things of this kind. Rather, rather a great civilization. And uh, they supposedly engaged in human sacrifice, which, of course, it would bring the dinner bell for parasites twice over. <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, and so th these things were um, perhaps a set of unemployed tribal gods. And as I say, had this not been a strict Protestant community in the 19th century, they might very well have taken over and made people, made right. people think they were gods. Pretty good dinner bell there. Right. So exactly. that, that that's my interpretation of that. Uh, now, now this Bell Witch case is also considered the only time uh, when it's known that a quote unquote spirit actually killed somebody. Well, I think that's rubbish. Right. Bell was dying anyway. Probably had uh, TB, and uh, he finally died. And the, the the film 
is interesting because at the end it has the, the spirit kind of being identified with the little girl. And that is one thing I found. Why would the parasite be there in the first place? What was, what, what was the main duck that was lined up? Well, there was apparently child sexual, sexual abuse going on with John Bell here. Well, see, here, that's, that's my problem with the whole thing. I've read numerous books, including the original account, and I never saw anything that indicated child sexual abuse going on. That's not um, the kind of thing not, they would talk about. Well, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of assumptions that that must be yeah. what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, yeah, but I never saw anything. All I saw with John Bell was a guy who was terrified and was trying his best to protect his family. So when I saw that film, I thought, okay, you know, it was almost like to me it was a cop-out. Okay, look, we can explain this. Surely it was child sexual abuse, and, and this was her psyche getting revenge and things like that. And there was no evidence for that at all in the original case, not one shred. Well, I don't know about that, uh, Mike. I, I, I think we've got... Um some some there's a, there's a manuscript written supposedly by uh, Betsy's husband, eventual right. husband, who was the teacher, who says that that she confided in him that that was the case. Now, again, you don't know if mm. that's legitimate, but I, I just have a feeling that it might be. Maybe because right. it fits my theories. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> that that's one of the things anyway. So, so that that was my interpretation of it. I mean, you can't present any of this as fact because we just don't. Know. Well, you know, even had there were there were other weird things that went on with that case. For instance, the the strange uh, uh, figures hanging in the trees, um, and and just really weird stuff, uh, uh, materializing objects from the Caribbean, including food. Um, you know. Whatever yeah. this was had a, had a lot of power, or well, eventually what, it did. Oh, sure. Well, when you have you know, multiversal intersects, I mean, these things seem able to mul- to uh, manipulate time and space. Mm-hmm. Because and they, they had, slaves, had slaves on the property, too. That's right. Yeah, the slaves weren't immune from being bothered by these things either. They were terrified. Right. And in fact, so, they took uh, great yeah. delight in, 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 in uh, tormenting the slaves. Yeah. And, that, well, another food source. You know, so that's um, I, I think you know it certainly is a multifaceted case as as they all are, and uh, I was always interested too in uh, the alleged uh, visit by Andrew Jackson uh, to <laughs> right. this place with his entourage. You know, he was not president yet, but <laughs> supposedly he got his uh, his wagon stuck in the mud, and the the so called Bell Witch uh, helped him helped him get out of it. And the the name, by the way, for those who don't know, uh, there was a. Um, uh, Kate Batts, whose who's, uh, property apparently um, paralleled uh, the Bell property, there was a dispute over some kind of, you know, who owed who what and all this stuff. And uh, Kate was not looked upon with favor by the community. And they, some people thought she was a witch because this is long after they were, you know, doing witch trials and stuff. And uh, she supposedly told John Bell that she was going to fry him, and this is what happened. So, uh, mm-hmm. hence the name Bell Witch. So, I, I, you know, you can't tell if any of that ever happened either. <laughs> well, this thing even went to church, remember? And, oh, sure. And, this, yeah. and Kate Bass had, had made a bunch of really strange statements and accusations and pronouncements in church directed at John Bell. So, they thought that the two were, were related. Well, that's but, it. But, you know, when you... But but it was, I mean, not, it, was think, not, it was not a civil court, so so the records, right. you know, uh, we don't know. It was exactly. just a church church uh, church court, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, so, but that's it. And also in in the book, we uh, we get into other uh, early American cases uh, of um, bizarre stuff going on. One that is very little known 
uh, was the uh, what, what was known as the Specter Leaguers of Cape Ann, Massachusetts, in 1692. Of course, 1692 was the the year that the uh, <coughs> Salem witch hysteria broke out, mostly in the town of Danvers in Salem. And uh, the the funny thing with that was that that was not far from this area. So I wonder if the Specter Leaguers incident didn't get people all jumped up up there about the paranormal and uh, hence they were very willing to see witches later on because they usually mm. were anyway but mm. i often wonder if it wasn't right. a catalyst so that that was an awfully odd situation where all of a sudden in the um the area people would begin to see these figures in white and uh the first incident that i'm aware of and, and this was recorded by the reverend john emerson who was a, uh, like like a first cousin of mine several times removed it's it's got to be my family i'll tell you fellas so, <laughs> Red's uh, in the family <laughs> that's it so that was picked up by cotton mather the uh the the great writer who uh, chronicled early new england who was a puritan minister in the magnolia right. christi americana or the wonders of christ in america and this is one of the, the things in there and people would didn't know who these were they they were they thought they were either demons or frenchmen which in colonial new england there wasn't much difference so they were they hide in the fort and these things would come pound on the doors and all this stuff and run around and uh, one man saw two of them coming out of his house uh, Mr. Babson, his name was, and he ran in to his wife and children and said, who the hey was that coming out? They said, well, there was nobody in the house. What are you talking about? Uh, they would be shot at and not be hurt. Uh, so, uh, other times, you know, you fire one shot and, and like 20 of them would fall down. And then you go there and, and, and they, they disappear. And it got to yeah. the point where they're almost like we're playing with people. Uh, there were right. some sightings of lights in the sky, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you can't really, at that distance, you can't really say this was involved in that. Uh, they were heard speaking a very strange language nobody could identify. And this went on for a while, and, um, finally they, they, they realized, well, you can't have soldiers do anything about this because they can't be hurt by weapons. And they figured they, they were demons. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's about when the whole thing settled down, but it's, uh, they call them the Specter Leaguers, and that was one of the weirdest things in colonial New England, and I think it might have spurred the witch hysteria later that year. Right. So you had that, and, um, American history is fraught with this stuff. We also talked about, um, uh, George Washington and the Angel, and, and the, uh, no, not, not in this book, but in, in the uh, Bell Witch book, we talked about, uh, the vampire, uh, hysteria in uh, early New England, particular, or not even early New England, in the late 19th century in Rhode Island mm-hmm. here, and right. um, you know that sort of thing. Which um, uh, n- not by country bumpkins either. These people were. Uh, I'm thinking of the Brown family in Exeter, Rhode Island, who were scions of one of the most distinguished colonial families in, in Rhode Island, and uh, they actually had their daughter exhumed, uh, and uh, her heart burned on a nearby rock. Because they believed she was preying upon the uh, members of her family, wow. and uh, you know it was amazing. And you could still see the rock to this day, and the stone, and the uh, gravestone. Uh, Mercy Brown was her name, and the the uh, pious epitaph has been what w- was effaced from her stone, as if it was her fault, or as if any of this was real. And uh, right. one of the problems was when they exhumed her, uh, she was um, looked like she was in the pink of health. But, of course, it was early in the year. She died late the previous year. You know, they stuck her in the, uh, the, the holding vault in the cemetery because she couldn't break ground. The ground is frozen. So, naturally, she's going to look pretty good. Yeah, she's frozen. 
It's yeah. in the refrigerator now. Well, let me ask you, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on witchcraft in regard to some of this stuff? Do you think any of this at all has anything to do with summonings or, or rituals or anything like that? Well, that's a good question, and I've thought about that. You're talking about the colonial New England. Uh, things well, were like, pretty for strict. instance, there's a show on now about the, about the Salem, whole Salem thing. It's called Salem. And yeah. It's kind of a, uh, sort of a dark soap opera, really. Yeah, um, yeah I, haven't, I know about it. I haven't seen it. But, yeah, you know, it's basically junk. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, again, you know, they embellish for dramatic purposes. But uh, you know, I think it's very possible. People, people who live in the wilderness and have to carve their homes out of the wilderness tend... Uh, to either be at war with the earth or learn that they should be part of nature, you know, that kind of thing. Mm, so yeah. when people become part of nature, there, there were some people, uh, in the, among the early settlers here who were not necessarily part of the Puritan community, all right? Right. Uh, they, they were, um, you know, uh, adventurers or, or just people who wanted to get away from uh, the old country and maybe they had uh, debts there and all sorts of things like that, but they, they were, they were not part of the community, and they, so they were viewed with suspicion to some degree. Now, I don't want to badmouth the Puritans because th- th- there are a lot of good things about them. They were great advocates of education. They founded Harvard and Yale, and, and they did a lot of good things. Uh, but th- yeah, they, they weren't too uh, nice to people who disagreed with them. On the <laughs> other hand, so um, I think there there might have been people who were doing that, and there might have been people who were into herbalism and things like this. There was a whole great tradition in Europe that went back to pagan times. Uh, uh, that that uh, and there were a lot of pagan survivals uh, among herbalists and people of this kind who simply were close to the earth, and uh, sometimes that might have been misinterpreted because I don't know some of the early Christians of that period, early Christians were, but Christians in the nineteenth, the seventeenth, sixteenth, fifteenth centuries were not necessarily friends of the earth. So, yeah, there might have been suspicion raised there, but I don't know if there's anybody actually out there uh, practicing voodoo or anything, except. Maybe some of the slaves who came from the Caribbean. So there might have been an aspect of that, but we really don't know. Hmm. Well, you know the uh, the the spiritist uh, communities, especially like in uh, Brazil. I mean, they they believe that uh, a poltergeist activity can can be the result of being cursed. Well, and, yeah, uh, you might, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, would, I, I think that goes into like the the, the Philippines and uh, I, I guess some of the other like Caribbean uh, communities, yeah. you know, think the same way. Well, I was—I uh, don't know if I'd call it an honor, but uh, in Haiti in 1984, I was allowed to come to a voodoo loa ceremony, mm. and uh, the voodoo priest had kind of taken a shine to me, and we got talking. Oh, come on, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, you wouldn't believe some of this stuff. And talk about parasites. It was the creepiest thing I ever saw. You could just feel the things, you know? Right. And, uh, people would be, uh, possessed as they, uh, you know, willingly and, uh, all sorts of things would happen. And he, one guy was told the date of his own death. Oh, wow. Now, we would usually be horrified of that, but he said, well, it was great because now I, I know I can prepare my family. So I guess it, it's, there's a different point of view even on that. So. So, they, but these people thought this was great. I thought it was horrifying, but, but yeah, you've got uh, a lot of traditions from that area that, that might very well have carried over with the slaves. Of course, originally they came from Africa. The, uh, the voodoo tradition really came from that, and and it assimilated things as it went. So now it's got a lot of Christian symbols in it and everything else. So that that might very well have been um, one of the catalysts in New England for that, and it's uh, it's still alive and well to this day, down there. Mm. 
<laughs> you know, one of, one of the things that I always found fascinating about the whole uh, uh, poltergeist and haunting phenomena is that you have, uh, I mean, uh, since the beginning of re- recorded history, uh, this the same stuff happening over and over and over again. And I mean, you know, most people, with the exception of you know us, <laughs> you know, yeah, people right. people who are interested in stuff like that. So, I mean, they they have no idea uh, 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 about these kind of things. I mean, you were talking about the Bell Witch, and you know, one of the aspects of the Bell Witch. Uh, which is is often repeated, especially in uh, uh, poltergeist activity that starts to really uh, gain strength, is the appearance apparently are what seems to be multiple beings, each one with their own personality, voices, and names. I mean, the, the Bell Witch, I can't remember some of the names. I, I know one of them was like Mathematics. And uh, things like that, and uh, uh, and again, I mean, it's a situation where most people don't know that, yet you see it reoccurring time and time again. Well, yeah, well, in these exorcisms that I was part of, you know, one of the things was to get the name of the demon, you know, and if you get the name, then you would have more power over it, you know, which is an old, old, old tradition. You know, and uh, that's, for example, why you notice when someone tell, even if you've been talking to someone for a while, you tell their, they tell you their name, and you 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 don't even think of it. You reach out and you shake hands, mm. you know, because they've just given you, they've just put you in a position of trust because you know their name. See? Mm-hmm. That's an old old human thing, right? And so the same thing with these these parasites or whatever. But the question is, the question is, how do you know it's the right name and all this thing? Or does it even have a name? Uh, I've noticed with these parasites that they seem to have a culture. Uh, they seem to have a leader. They seem to have leadership. Some of them, anyway. Some are rogues, but they're just like um, you know, most other intelligent life forms. They have a, an order and a pattern, and maybe they do have names. I don't usually worry much about that. You know, I don't, I don't like to get too chummy. Although I swear I've run into the same ones here and there right. from, from right. time to time. You know, but uh, there it is. Well, I just often wonder. No, no, I was, I was, no, no, I was just going to finish the thought here. Is just I've often wondered whether or not you know these cases where you know there there does appear to be you know like uh, multiple entities, if that's actual true, or if you're just dealing with one who you know is just having just having a good time. <laughs> well, that's possible, but I, you know you, you get to, there's a certain feel these things have a certain presence, and after you've done it a few thousand times, you kind of get used to the to the presence and the signs of what it is, and I. You know, from right, I think that uh, there very are uh, very often are multiple uh, ones that are um, involved in certain cases, you know, such as Bridgeport uh, or the Bell Witch case. Or because I wasn't there, I'm not that old. But uh, you know, it was sort of a uh, very very seldom have I seen one hmm. involved. Th- that's that's my experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. So they basically are usually in sort of a team situation where they they sort of work together to torment people. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Well, there, there, there's a deeper question here, fellas, that, that really is rather chilling. This goes to the idea of who we really are, what we're for, where we really came from. Now, there's right. a big there's a big thing today. Of course, Van Daniken really got it going in the '60s about uh, you know ancient aliens and did anybody mess with uh, with our uh, DNA and all this stuff. Well. You know, I didn't know what to make of that, and I kind of wondered in '03 when the Human Genome Project 
wrapped up, and they were able to um, to discern that there were 223 genes that shouldn't be in human DNA if evolution, as we understand it, is correct. And the best they could do was uh, some sort of uh, what they called the horizontal transfer from bacteria. Which <laughs> tell me what that means? Uh, <laughs> right. right. And so there's, there are a lot of weird things. Uh, from our past. And one wonders uh, who these ancient gods really were. I mean, the, you had the parasitical ones, you know, the human sacrifice, and all, but you had others who seemed more distinguished, like Isis and Osiris and everything. And you know, it may have been based on, on real human characters, you know, way back before things were recorded. But they might have been somebody else from somewhere else or whatever. Might might have been aliens, or who knows. But the whole parasite thing raises a question of, did something mess with us way back, not only making us think they were gods in some of these tribal situations or ancient civilizations, but was there a sort of setting us up as, for lack of a better term, cattle for mm. their nourishment? Right. Are we being farmed? You know, did something mess with us to make us... Well, are we you know, being farmed on many different levels in many by many different uh, entities? Yeah, types. Yeah, and uh, you know, is it just us? I mean, there's there's never just one farm. There's always a a ranch here and a farm there. <laughs> so maybe different parts of the multiverse. Yeah, as I say, we've run into parallel worlds where they seem to be active as well, and the residents there, maybe human or not, are just as confused as we are. So uh, this seems to be kind of a multiverse. Cro- uh, multiversal racket going on here well have you ever seen evidence in terms of encounters with the inhabitants of these other multiverses that are not the parasites but where you actually have had like a close interaction with somebody or something from another another dimension oh many times and this this was a sort of a uh, a learning kind of curve here, and a sort of I absorbed it by osmosis because it certainly was not part of my original theological uh, background. You know, you, you, did, right. you didn't you didn't seek contacts with quote the dead and all this stuff. But what really seems to be happening is is that we have a lot of neighbors, and when you are open to these things and think in different ways, you can run into this in cases. I found early on, and this first happened in. Uh, Yonkers, New York, in 1976, early early 1977, um, at the seminary, the, the Orthodox Seminary, we would just fan out across Westchester County or Greater New York uh, on weekends in the seminaries. You know, would teach church school classes or or visit with uh, the sick or whatever. And I was in this parish, and a woman. Uh, I looked over, and there was there was a, a woman uh, talking to one of my classmates who was pointing at me. And uh, she came scurrying over and said, "Oh, that young man said you were uh, you know about ghosts." Oh, and I was ready to kill my classmate because I was trying to keep a low profile. He kind of <laughs> smirked, and uh, I ended up spending three nights in these people, the, the attic owned by these people. And they said, "Well, we're hearing these um, uh, strange footsteps in, in in the attic, and we don't know." And there's kind of a, a moaning sound, or at least what they interpreted. So naturally, the first thing I did, I go up and check, see, is there any window that's open? Is there air coming through, or what's going on? You know, is, it, is it heat, or whatever? And um, I found myself, I went into sort of this meditative state, which is a common spiritual practice anywhere. And it took the better part of two nights doing that. But I suddenly was talking to a man who said he had 
didn't really know where he was, but he or why he was where he was. He had he remembered being in a plane that was in trouble, and all of a sudden he was in this stone church in Virginia, and he had seen this. He thought I was a, some kind of a ghost because he, he was you know per- perfectly physical in this church in Virginia, and I was like this mist by this pillar in this church, and he was afraid. To make a long story short, he was living on food, and he couldn't get out. Living on food in the church basement, where there was like a hall. I mean, what ghost needs to live on food? And, but, but as, as we talked, his memory seemed to change. I mean, if this was legitimately what I was hearing. Right. His memory seemed to change. And all, you know, by, by the end of the conversation, which as I say took three nights, he was, uh, they're probably wondering what I was doing up there. He was, uh, I could hear, a wooden door, and he had forgotten everything about any plane. He was the pastor of this church. He kind of forgot about me, and I could hear these people talking, presumably coming into this church. And there, there he was in his parallel life, perfectly at home. If that's what this was, that's strange. Yeah. So, that's oh, strange. oh, I, I could. You got. If you had more time, I could. See, that, that's nothing compared to some of the other things. But yeah, we have a lot of neighbors. And a lot of good neighbors who are aware of us because of the laws of physics are different in different worlds. Right. And uh, I think that a lot of the angel theories are based on these good, if, in our point of view, uh, entities who are, I think, outnumber the parasites. So we have good and bad out there and a lot of neutral, and it's uh, it's pretty well balanced, actually. Huh. And we got to watch our P's and Q's because we make our own bed out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's uh, the the idea that this that this guy was on a plane and then found himself trapped in a church for a while. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of disturbing. Well, <laughs> nobody was more disturbed than I was. Well, yeah. the way this thing jumps around, I mean, he was he was on a plane, then he was trapped in the basement or trapped in the church and eating food in the basement, and then suddenly he switches gears like somebody arrives and he takes on the role as pastor. And yeah. I have to wonder, honestly, if that's not somebody who's dreaming. Yeah, but maybe the, it was. Because maybe of the transitions, the, the way, you know how dreams operate. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden he's doing one thing and then there's something else, and how did I get here? And then all of a sudden somebody comes in and starts talking to you like you're the pastor, so you're the pastor. Maybe they got, you know, maybe a pastor was having this dream and... That's what you were connecting with. Well, but here's the thing, Mike. He was there with me. He was there sure. with me. Sure. In that, you know, and, and he saw me with him, and I saw him with me. Right. Not, not clearly, but but you know, there was an outline there, and it, it, that that's what makes me wonder. You know, if yeah, it could have been a dream, but it, if it was, it was awfully physical and awfully well, real. No, but but what I'm what I'm getting at is, what if, as many ancient traditions tell us, that the dream world is not always just in our mind. Yeah. What if it is access portal to, you know, th- this multiverse that you're talking about? In other yeah. words, you were both. He was dreaming. You may not have been dreaming, but he was dreaming. But that doesn't mean that that you weren't having access to each other. Yeah, a very definite possibility. When very I talked with shamans, uh, particularly in Australia in '79, uh, I was there in the line of duty, and I spent the whole seven hours talking to this shaman, who was very forthcoming. What's to my surprise? And he talked about the dream time, and he said, "You know, you're on the right track with this stuff. Just keep going." And he told me about a shaman he'd known who'd gone into a parallel world and, and dragged somebody literally by the arm back across the boundary, electromagnetic boundary, because they died in this world and not in the other, and the family 
begged him to bring him back, and it wasn't a good idea because of what happened. But it, uh, you know, I mean, this, this, as I say, it's the first day of school. Right. Wow. That <laughs> that sounds almost like a tales from the crypt type of <laughs> type of story, you know. Uh, you, you drag the guy back, and then he, you know he's been embalmed. And <laughs> no, 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 the guy was he's not what he seemed. You know, yeah, something's changed. Yeah. Now I heard that in Quebec from a separate shaman and in Australia, two two opposite ends of the world. They end that at themselves, but they were they were children when they witnessed other shaman doing that. Huh. In one case, it was a child, and in another case, it was a, a family man who had died in Quebec and had left his, his family on the reservation there. And uh, yeah, the guy who came back, he, he'd walk by his own grave every day when he went to work. And and he, he had different memories. Some people he didn't remember, so, you know, and, and it was, you know, this goes on and on. I mean, it just, to me, really sounded like... Uh, you know, parallel lives and all this kind of thing. And the shamans uh, both said, you know, that's that's the right idea. So, dreams or not, there you have it. Well, you know, I had I had somebody tell me a story one time where uh, she said that she was on a she was on a plane, and you know, it, it's it's funny you were talking about you know the guy who said that uh, you know he 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 had been in like you know, on on a plane as well, but she said that the plane developed problems and that the, uh, the she said the last thing that she remembers was that it uh, the the plane was like uh, dipping and diving and the pilot uh, got on and told everyone to. Uh, fastened their seat belts and she said that all of a sudden she just went blank and then the next thing she knew she they were landing and that there was no talk about you know any kind of problem or anything like that and she said to me she said i often wondered whether or not i died and you know and then reappeared or my life continued you know in this this world oh that, that was this guy's wife tim I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I run into that day in and day out. Once people start to look at it that way, they 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 start to you know kind of a lot of them interpret the interpret it the way Ben and I do, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it's when you run into the non-human entities that it really gets interesting. Hmm. You know, such as the I I refer to as the noble bear case uh, (laughs) in Buffalo, New York, in the '80s, and it was. a very interesting. This uh, there was an attic again. Same thing. They were hearing all these weird noises, and this wasn't. Uh, I, I, it wasn't really a bear, but I interpreted that as sort of an ursine creature, but, but with such strength and nobility and goodness emanating from this th- this this being. Uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a supernatural being; just different. But it was on a quest for a place place called Renthusia. You know. New to me, I don't know what the heck that is, but it was passing through uh, where we were there, just on its way somewhere else, and uh, we had an interesting conversation in old, in some kind of form of Latin that I really had to work out, because very often there's a language barrier, I mean, they don't all speak English, mm-hmm. there's languages I never heard sometimes, or sometimes not even languages, you know, but but this this ursine creature, whatever or whoever or wherever it was from, or whenever, uh, I had to really work out the case endings, and it was a, a very odd form of Latin, and it took three days to communicate, you know, if I was communicating correctly, but that's what it said. Wow, that's bizarre. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, that's the multiverse we live in. Uh-huh. Well, uh, Paul, unfortunately, we are rapidly running out of time here. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we're we're going to have to have you back real real soon so we can continue. Because, you know, just, just as you start getting to some of the stranger cases that I always enjoy hearing about, we're out of time. So, <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you uh, tell our audience real quick where uh, online uh, they can find out more about you, your, your radio show with your son, Ben, and uh, all that. Well, sure. Uh, probably the best best place to begin is BehindTheParanormal.com. That's the show site. There's 600 free podcasts going back over the years from CBS and from uh, WON Boston area. And also uh, NewEnglandGhosts.com. A lot of cases, articles. You can buy books there and all kinds of great stuff. And there are links to uh, the Bell Witch Book Project as well. Both those sites. Very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And uh, just real quick, how did you uh, how did you get involved in uh, doing this radio show? Oh, actually, um, let me think. Oh, I was a guest on many shows, and somebody on an internet station said, you know, why don't you have your own show? Everybody likes to hear you when you're a guest. So we started with uh, one of the with those in Fe- based out of Phoenix, and then uh, a local station here in uh, New England uh, picked us up because they were interested in it. And then CBS picked us up uh, in that, that November of '09. And uh, we were on there for four and a half years, and the, but they closed down the entire part of the network in uh, January first, twenty fourteen. So we're now, so we're back in our Boston Providence station, W O O N twelve forty. That's uh, Monday evenings at six o'clock. Drive time. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for for being with us uh, tonight, Paul. We really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely fascinating conversation with you. And like yeah, I said, uh, yeah, yeah, please come back, please come back again. Yeah, well, thank you both, gentlemen. Uh, It's always a pleasure. We enjoyed it. Yeah, very much so. All right, so we need to uh, wrap this up. So you have been listening to The Outer Edge. Uh, Our guest tonight has been uh, Paul Enos. Uh, I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott. Thank you very much for listening, and be sure to tune in this time next week where I'm sure we'll have uh, another fascinating program. So from all of us, good night, and... Thanks for being with us.